for this morning, verses 32 through 46 of Luke chapter 23. Our sermon is going to particularly focus on verse 46. But like every text of scripture, it is written within a context of scripture. And so for the sake of understanding this verse correctly, we will read also its context. So we'll be reading Luke 23, verses 32 through 46. as you find your place there, let me encourage you to give careful and diligent attention. Every time scripture is read, God speaks. This is not, this is not human words. These are God's words. So let us hear them together. Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly? For we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray and seek his illumination. Our God, we are so thankful to you for your word. Although we hear the Bible in human language, we know it is not human opinion. It is the word of God. We thank you for breathing it out through the inspired writers. We thank you for preserving it down through the ages. We thank you for providing faithful translators and faithful translations so that we can hear the word of God in the language of our hearts. And as we have heard your word with attention, so now we pray that we would consider your word with illumination. Our God, we ask that your spirit would fill us as we think about these words and that you would transform us by the renewal of our minds. Grow in us this morning faith, new faith or renewed faith, faith for the first time, or faith living stronger in this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the expression, famous last words? 
Right, many of us have heard that. And oftentimes it's true. The last words of a person can be very famous. And it's, it's an interesting thing to just think about some of the, the last words of famous people in history. I'll just give you a couple examples this morning. Harriet Tubman, her last words recorded are these. She said right before she died, I go to prepare a place for you. Last words of Harriet Tubman. The last words of Martin Luther. Anybody know them? Martin Luther's last recorded words are these. We are beggars. This is true. And my favorite, other than verse 46 of Luke 23, my, my favorite set of last words, the last words of Johann Sebastian Bach. Anybody know these? Johann Sebastian Bach was a professing Christian, and right before he died, he said this. Don't cry for me, for I go where the music is born. Isn't that beautiful? Don't cry for me. I go where the music is born. Glorious. The significance of last words, the reason they can be famous, is because they reveal something important about the person who says them. And they often are a declaration to the world. Think about it. None of us yet is, is at that point where we're issuing our last words, and I certainly hope not to experience that this morning. But... If you got to that point and you were still able to speak, would you not be thinking, what are the last things I want to say? What is the last piece of my heart that I want to give to my loved ones and perhaps to the wider world? A person's last words are significant because they are a reflection of who they are and what they do. Well, we come here this morning in Luke's Gospel to some of the last words of Jesus before he died. If you compare the different gospel accounts, you'll see that Matthew and Mark, they both tell us that after Jesus cried out that great cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew and Mark both tell us then he issued a loud cry. If you look at John's gospel, John, John's last recorded words of Jesus are, it is finished. When you come to Luke's gospel, the last recorded words are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, we don't know for sure whether John's words or Luke's words were technically the last, but both of them are among the last words of Jesus. And so these words before us this morning in Luke 23, 46 are important. And so we want to ask this morning, we want to explore together, what do these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what do they reveal to us about Christ? What do they declare to us? And what I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters and friends, is that there's a lot more here than there may at first appear. But in order to understand that, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so that's where we're going to go first. In fact, we're going to see here, in these last words of Jesus this morning, three things, three main things. We're going to see first that these are part of the last temptation of Christ, then secondly, we're going to see that they are part of the last perfection, the crowning perfection of Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to see that they can be the last words for us. The last temptation of Christ, the last perfection of Christ, and the last words that you and I will ever need. And we'll unpack all of that together. But first, let's ask, what does it mean to say that these are the last temptation? They're part of the last temptation of Christ. 
you have to go back earlier to the ministry of Jesus. And we didn't read it this morning. But do you remember, kids, do you remember when Jesus first began his ministry, Jesus was sent by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by somebody. Who was tempting Jesus in the wilderness? Anybody remember? It was the devil. The devil tempted Jesus. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4. And the devil tempted Jesus in three major areas. In the area of appetites, in the areas of ambition, in the area of anxiety. And, and do you remember some of the words that the devil said to Jesus? Very important. Very important. When he was tempting him about the bread, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Later on, when he, when he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. But after Jesus resists all those first three temptations, Luke chapter 4, verse 13 says something very important to us. Luke says there that the devil left him until an opportune time. Meaning, the temptation wasn't finished yet. Satan was going to bide his time and come back around for another swipe. And then what happens now as Jesus is being crucified? As Jesus is being led to the cross, Jesus faced that last temptation. Not now directly through the voice of Satan, but through the voice of those who are crucifying him and are crucified with him. Did you hear it as we were reading? Look again at verse 35. What do they say? He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ. There it is again. If you are the Christ. Verse 37, when the soldiers mock him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There it is again. And even the one robber, verse 39, are you not the Christ? The same phrase that was used in the earlier temptation of Jesus now is used in the last temptation of Jesus. If you are the Christ, are you really the Christ? If you are the Christ, stop the crucifixion. Satan is taking his last swipe when Jesus is at his physical weakest, trying to get him to doubt God's word. What did Satan first say to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God actually say? And so now again, coming around, has God actually said that you must die on this cross? Yet, if you know the story of the Passion, you know that God had already made his will for the Lord Jesus cleared. Remember in Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus to do what? Not give him an airlift, not give him an escape hatch, but to enable him to endure. And do you remember as well that throughout this whole episode, throughout the whole series of events leading up to the crucifixion, did Jesus have the power to escape if he wanted to? He absolutely did. As he says in Matthew to his disciples, when, they, when, when things are starting to fall apart, he says to his disciples, do you not think that I could appeal to my father and he would at once send me what? Twelve legions of angels. I could call in the ultimate airstrike, Jesus is saying. Yet, how then will the scripture be fulfilled? 
This is the final test of Jesus. And what kind of test is it? It is a test, it is a test of trust. Jesus had trusted his father the whole way through his earthly ministry. He had trusted his father throughout his life. But now comes the big test. Will he trust his father even when it costs him his life? And you might wonder, well, why would God the Father require such a radical test of trust from God the Son? It's a great question. To answer that, we have to go even a little further back in the story of the Bible, all the way to the beginning. All the way to the Garden of Eden, in fact. Because this test that Jesus is enduring here on the cross is the very test that Adam failed in the Garden. Remember in the Garden of Eden, kids, you've all heard this story in Sunday school, I'm sure, that God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, you may eat of every tree in the garden except for one. Now, that one tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God tell them they couldn't eat of that tree? Was it because he wanted them to fast? Some of you are into fasting and dieting. I, I, I do intermittent fasting. It's not about that. There was plenty of food. He said, you can eat of the trees, but just not this one. Why not? Why not that one? God didn't explain. He just said, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. He didn't tell them why he wanted them to stay away. Because why? Because he wanted them to trust him. This was the great test for Adam and Eve. Will they trust God, not because they understand every detail? Will they trust God simply because of who God is? God had given them everything. They had no reason to doubt God. And that was the great test. Will they trust him simply for who he is? Will they trust God for God's sake? Will they exercise what some writers would call naked faith? And what happened in, in the Garden of Eden? Did Adam pass or did he fail? He failed. The Presbyterian congregation, we're all whispering it. He failed. He failed. And that means that if humanity is ever going to be rescued, if there's ever going to be a new beginning, a new creation, new life, forgiveness, eternity, that someone, somehow, is going to have to prevail where Adam failed. But there's a complication now after the Garden of Eden. After the Garden of Eden, humanity is corrupt. Humanity has been poisoned. And after the fall, self-centeredness, self-interest poisons everything. Think about the story of Job. Remember the story of Job when, when Satan comes before God and, and God says to Job, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And what does Satan say? Well, he's a mercenary. He doesn't serve you for... Just because of your, your God, you've given him everything. You've made his life easy peasy, lemon squeezy. That's what it says in the Hebrew. I'm joking. But the point that Satan was making is, does, God, does Job serve God for nothing? You've given him a cakewalk. Of course he'll do what you say. And see, after the fall, we're always open to that accusation. Even an upright man like Job is open to the accusation that we serve God for his stuff rather than for himself. And so if Adam's failure is ever going to be reversed, what has to happen? You have to have an upright man who is put to the ultimate test with everything else taken away. This upright man, in order to prevail where Adam failed, 
He must literally be stripped of everything but God. He must be stripped of, of every good thing that he's ever enjoyed. His friends have to abandon him. Even his clothing must be taken from him. Even his sense of the Father's pleasure, at least for a moment, must be taken away. Now, what does that sound like? Does it not sound like the cross? Christ's friends abandon him, and we are told in verse 34 that he was stripped of his garments. They cast lots, dividing up his garments. And then the judgment of God himself falls upon the Lord. Look at verse 44. It's not a footnote. It's not a throwaway line for Luke. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land. Where's the first time in the Bible that darkness falls over the whole land? During the Exodus, when God brings a judgment upon the land of Egypt. And in Joel's prophecy, Joel tells us that when the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, darkness will be a part of it. And Matthew and Mark's account tell us that it was at that time that Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's lost his friends, they've abandoned him. He's been stripped of his clothing and of his dignity. And now, even for that one horrible moment, the judgment of God rather than the love of the Father falls upon him. Now is the moment where Jesus will be truly tested. Will he, who claims to be the second Adam, who claims to be the new Israel, will he, who claims to be the one who can, who can prevail where Adam failed, now will he trust God? Not for God's stuff, because all of God's gifts have been taken away. Will he trust God simply for who God is? And the answer is, he did. And the way we know it is in verse 46. Because even, if, even at that darkest moment that any human being has ever faced, what does Jesus say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are words that indicate that Jesus' faith never failed, that he believed the promises of God. Because you know where he's quoting from? He's quoting from the Old Testament again. He's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting from Psalm 31.5, which is a psalm of trust in the face of threat. We read it as our call to worship this morning, if you, if you noted that. For you are my rock and my fortress, Psalm 31, verse 3. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net into which they've secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Now, friends, we have to be careful here. What does it mean to say that Jesus had faith and believed God's promises? Well, there's a difference in the way Jesus believes and in the way we believe in terms of what we're believing for. Is it not true? What do we trust God for? We trust God for the forgiveness of our sins. Do we not? Did Jesus have to trust God for the forgiveness of his sins? No. Did Jesus have any sins? No. Jesus wasn't trusting God for the forgiveness of his sins. He was doing something else. Christians... We trust God so that we will be saved instead of dying for our sins. Jesus trusted God so that he would be saved after dying for our sins. We trust God for redemption. Jesus trusted God for resurrection. And there were those promises made to the Messiah. 
One of them we sang in Psalm 16 just a little earlier. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Also in Isaiah 53, that great passage that talks about the crucifixion, also promises resurrection. It says, Isaiah 53, 11, As a result of the anguish of his soul, my servant will see it and be satisfied. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Jesus had no sin of his own. He didn't need to trust God to be forgiven of his sins. Jesus was not trusting God for redemption. Jesus was trusting God for resurrection. After paying for our sins, he trusted God that God would raise him from the dead. And that is why these last words of Jesus are so important, because they reveal to us that Christ's faith never, ever, ever failed. Think about the extraordinary nature of that act of faith. Compare it with Adam. <clears throat> Even amidst all the comforts of Eden, Adam and Eve had everything. And they still failed to trust God. They had comfort, they had company, they had honor and dignity. He was the head of the created order under God. And he failed. By contrast here, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in comfort? No, under torture. In, in honor? No. Uh, his dignity stripped. He's nailed to a cross. Lots of company and friends around him? No. Enemies. He's even feeling the judgment of God. And yet where Adam failed, Jesus triumphed. And this tells us something so very important that if you really grasp this, it will change your life. I promise you this. It tells us that Jesus was perfect for us, not just in his thoughts and his words and his deeds, not just in his life, but also in his faith. Why is that so important? Have you ever thought about it? It's actually the crowning achievement of all that Jesus did. He was not just perfect for us in his life. He was perfect for us in his faith. Why is that so important? Because, friends, you and I have a big problem, and it goes way deeper than we imagine. When we think of our sins, where do we tend to locate them? Well, we tend to locate them in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. And honestly, there's enough there to keep us pretty busy. Am I right? But that's not the only place where our souls have holes, is it? We also have failures, and we also have holes in our faith itself. Have you ever admitted that? That your faith itself is riddled through with holes? That your faith itself, the thing that is to bind you and connect you to God, is itself like Swiss cheese with all sorts of holes? Maybe they are doubts, intellectual doubts about the claims of the Christian faith. Maybe they are existential doubts. You're just struggling to continue to believe God in the midst of hardship, suffering, grief, trials. Our, our faith has holes in it. But if you grasp the fact that Jesus was perfect for you, not just in his life, but in his faith, then you realize something really extraordinary. That nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, not even the holes in your faith. Because Jesus' life was a complete double substitution. All that he did, he did for us. He didn't just pay for our failures. He obeyed for our shortcomings. 
He didn't just pay our debts. He did our duty. And part of that duty is believing God. And because Jesus' perfect life includes a perfect faith, then that means that the holes in his hands pay for even the holes in your faith. And if you believe that, then there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God ever. And don't we see this in the Bible itself? When Peter stepped out on the water to walk toward the Lord and his faith faltered and he started to sink, did Jesus say, well, you screwed up, bye-bye? No, that is not our Lord. He reached out and he grabbed him. When Thomas, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, had not been there with the first appearance of Christ, when Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see the holes in his hands, does Jesus say, well, kick him out, he's out? No, Jesus comes and says, hey, check it out. And even the Psalms themselves, have you ever been startled by sort of the troubling, even, I would say, even disrespectful honesty of the Psalms? The one that always sticks out to me, there's many examples, but Psalm 44, where the psalmist says, why are you sleeping, O God? Does God ever sleep? No. Is that a respectful thing to say to God? No, it's honest. I think that's why it's in the Psalms, to show us that God can take our honesty. But even when we are less than fully trusting in God, the faithfulness of Christ, the perfect faith of Christ, covers all those holes. Now do you see why this is such life-changing good news? All you have to do is put your, hand, your heart in the hands of Jesus, and you're safe. Nothing can separate you. How do you activate that? Well, this really is easier than it looks. You say it's hard to believe the gospel. It is, isn't it? But Jesus' last words can be our last words, friends. Think about it. When Jesus uttered those words, Psalm 31.5, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he uttered those words, he made them personal. He took the words of Psalm 31.5, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he made it personal and said to his, the direct object of his trust, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he personalized them. That's important. Also, he was facing the darkest trial any human being has ever faced. And if the most perfect man who ever lived at the worst moment any human being has ever faced used those words in a personal way, then it shows us that those words are the perfect expression of faith for any human being in the midst of any trial. And so what we can do is we can take those words and personalize them and direct them at the direct object of our faith, who is whom? Jesus. And so you can use those words and you can say, Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you can use them when? Anytime. All the time. You're struggling with doubts? Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Give him the doubts. You're struggling with worry? Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit and my health. If you're struggling with anxieties about your health. You're struggling with grief? Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit and my grief. Struggling with your own performance? Jesus, I worry that I'm not good enough. Into your hands I commit my spirit. works all the time. These words, the last words of Jesus, the, if you will, the omega prayer of Jesus, the last prayer of Jesus, they can be your omega prayer too. In every situation, in every circumstance, 
even when life seems to be squeezing you, and even when the providence of God seems to be tearing you apart, and you can say to the Lord, it's not that I doubt who you are, I just don't know why you are doing what you've done. Take that and give it into the hands of Jesus. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit and my questions and my struggle and my trials. It doesn't make everything better automatically. That's not how this works. Not even for Jesus. He still had to, to finish dying and wait the resurrection. Sometimes that's true for us too. But what it does do, my friends, is it puts everything exactly where it needs to be. Ultimately, where do we need to put all things in life and in death? Into the hands of God and Christ. And so when we take these words and make them our own, we put everything where it needs to be. Even the holes in our faith are paid for by the holes in his hands. And so we can say to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Will you take those words of Jesus and make them your own today? I pray that you will. Let's pray to him now.